Welcome to the Path and Focus podcast, where we record ourselves building a wildfire technology company. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowers, a software developer turned entrepreneur and podcast host. And I'm Kayleen McCullough, a former wildland firefighter turned software developer. And today, uh, I actually have with me my partner, Liam Elvins, who is currently a wildland firefighter. Hi, I'm uh, Liam Elvins, current wildland firefighter. Okay, you kind of undersold that just a little bit. Um, so you are a wildland firefighter, but y- you do so from a helicopter? Yeah, that's correct. So what's your actual title? Uh, I'm a crew member. Um, I-, I work for the Repel program. So we uh, yeah, access remote fires by repelling from helicopters. Uh, how fast can you run and can you outrun a fire? Uh, yeah, I could run pretty fast. Um, <laughs> depends how fast the fire is going. <laughs> you know, like uh, a, a rank six fire, which is our, our highest class of fire, I think moves at like 13 meters a minute or something like that. Maybe faster than that. Don't quote me on that. I can't remember that off the top of my head. So it's pretty fast, though. Yeah. I don't know if I could outrun that. Something smaller, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to tell you what you do <laughs> based on my understanding of it as a layperson, and then you correct everything that is is wrong. So I imagine that you hang out at a, a super fancy base, and then somebody pushes a big red button, and an alarm goes off, and you run to a helicopter, get in, fly away, and you rappel directly down on top of a fire, um, and then just put it out. And, and then a helicopter comes and picks you back up? That's what I guess you do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You nailed it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, the gist of it. There's, yeah, we have a base in Salmon Arm um, that all the rappel crews sort of uh, train at. And uh, that's sort of where we start our season. And then as the wildfire season picks up, we will be pre-positioned around the province to areas that require rappel resources. And then, yeah, what will often happen is once... Uh, a fire is identified as something that uh, other crews would have difficulty accessing or they just want to put a rappel crew on it. They'll uh, call the RAPTAC coordinator or RAPCO and he'll put in a HTR, which is a helitanker request. And then they'll call the crew and the crew will go to the fire. We usually rappel near the fire, not quite directly on it for obvious reasons. And then from there, uh, yeah, we'll get into fire suppression, whatever that is. Our machines have a belly tank so they can drop down water to us by what we call an offload, which is probably the wackiest thing we do. They literally drop a hose out of a helicopter and we have to catch it while you're like basically in a wind tunnel. So it's whipping around and you got to shove it in a bladder and fill it up with water. Oh, wild. Yeah, it's pretty wild, pretty wild maneuver. You're going to get wet. Huh. Yeah, I kind of imagine that you rappel down with um, oversized camelbacks and you use those to like squirt water on fires. But no, that that doesn't make sense. The helicopter has a bunch more water attached to it and then you siphon it out into another bladder on the ground. More or less, there's like a small pump in the belly tank and it's got enough pressure to get it kind of out of the tank. And then the gravity kind of sucks the rest out. And then, yeah, we can... We put it in a bladder or there's a a maneuver called the direct offload where we, if it's a small single tree or something like that, we might just grab the hose and spray it right at the fire. That doesn't happen super often, but it's kind of the the funny glory move. (laughs) All right, direct offload, 
Let's get out of here. That's the hero move. Do you rappel down the hose and just? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we've got uh, we've got a bunch of different types of ropes that we use for for rappel and dropping our gear off and picking our gear up and stuff like that. Oh, and then yeah, at the end of the fire, we, we either walk out or we hoist out. So there's a, a hoist on the machine uh, on the on the helicopter that can bring you back out. Yeah. So does the helicopter stay around? I mean, it does obviously if you're going to use the water from it, but. How often does it just stick around waiting for you folks to finish up whatever you're doing and then take you back? Um, typically, so yeah, we'll rappel in while we're setting up our bladder site. They'll do some tanking and drop loads of water on the fire just to knock it down and make it easier for us to get in there and do, do our job. And then after that, they'll yeah return to the nearest airport or nearest fuel. And if we need them, they'll come back and do a few more cycles. If not, they'll just go and wait, you know, maybe go to another target, support another crew, and then come back to us sort of around the time that we're done and pick us up. Or if we need more water or supplies or whatever, they'll kind of just have service the crews, basically. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. They're pretty expensive to operate. They don't want to just sit there hovering, waiting for you to have your lunch. And... Hurry up! <laughs> so the bladder sounds like it's a heavy thing and hard to deal with. Like, if you set it on the ground, that's kind of where it stays? Uh, I mean, once it's full of water, yeah, it's pretty heavy on its own. It's not too bad. It's a 350-gallon bladder, and it's just made from like a plasticky material. I'm not sure what it actually is. And so we actually fold it up pretty small to like, you know, a foot and a half by a foot and a half, put it in our bags. So it's, it's pretty light. I don't know, 10 pounds maybe, maybe 20. Yeah, once it's full, it's uh, you're not moving that around. It's pretty heavy. And then what other kind of gear comes with you? Uh, a couple chainsaws, two saws, hand tools, uh, a small pump in case we need, in case we find a creek or something, or we need to pump out of the bladder instead of using gravity. And then our sleeping gear, food, water, fuel. That's kind of it. How many pounds of gear would you have to be dealing with as an individual? Just for me, uh, I go in weighing at 180 pounds myself, like I weigh 155, I rappel out at about 180, so I have my leg bag, which is 6 pounds, and my ditty bag, which is 12 pounds. And then, oh, so that, that 350 pounds of gear, that's for the whole That's for the whole crew? That's for the whole crew to use. Each bag has to weigh 175 pounds, and there's two bags. So that's, so that's our saws, our bladder, our tents, everything, food, water, fuel. And you bring sleeping bags because it's a f- fun camping trip where you roast marshmallows out there? Yeah, you know, you get out there next to a fire, camp out. Do you have to, like, is that a plan is to spend the night or is that just in case? Uh, We go in ex- sort of expecting to overnight. Obviously, if there's concern of fire behavior or some other reason, we'll, we'll pull off. Sometimes some zones for whatever reason. Um, would prefer the crews not to overnight, and so we can get pulled off for that. Uh, but typically, kind of just makes sense that we're not repelling, hoisting, repelling, hoisting in and out of a target. If we can just get in there and sp- spend a couple nights there and get the job done. And so, like, you bring chainsaws and hand tools and these pumps and water bladders. Like, what do you do on a fire? I mean, I really don't have an, any idea what fighting fire is like. I just I imagine people show up and just hose hose it down, but um, there's probably more to it than that. So what does what does a rap attack firefighter do when they land? We're we're typically hitting small targets, so like ten meters by ten meters, 
or less than a hectare. Our fires are typically less than a hectare. This may be a good way to, to describe it because we are only a three-person a three crew. So typically we'll get on the ground, fill our bladder, find a water source, however we're going to get water. And when we get to the fire, depending on fire behavior, we'll do sort of a rough DTA assessment. So looking for danger trees and seeing if there's anything that's going to kind of fall on us while we're, while we're working in there. We'll do any falling we need to do. Um, we'll cut fuel freeze. So that's basically just cutting all fuel vegetation logs that are around the fire and uh, pull it away so that as the fire continues to burn while we're working around it, it doesn't have as much fuel to burn. So you're kind of, it'll just sort of hit a point where, where we'll have removed all the brush and vegetation and logs and it's just kind of like burning through the, the organic layer on the ground. Um, yeah, we got water on it, hosing it, uh, depending on an, our comfort level, we'll often dig hand guard around it. So where we've cut that fuel free with our saws, we'll actually get our hand tools out and dig through that organic layer down to mineral soil because mineral soil doesn't burn. And we'll do that sort of all the way around the fire. And then that'll prevent the ground fire from escaping. And then as long as we're in there with our hose, we can keep everything down and uh, nothing will climb any, like we won't get any fire climbing up into the trees and into the canopy. And how, how wide is this uh, fire-free and the when you're digging down to the mineral layer? Like how wide do you have to make that? Not super wide, um, like a Pulaski width. So Pulaski is like an axe on one side and a grub hoe on the other. And it's maybe like a, I guess a foot uh, wide. So that doesn't have to be super wide. Okay. I imagined it like a person wide, like a person's length. That's that's what I would imagine, but it doesn't have to be that wide at all. No, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. You'll see like like the big guards around larger fires that are, you know, like dozer guard. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's huge cuz it's a blade width or got a couple dozer blade widths. But but for around for like a small IA target, don't typically have to do that cuz you're not getting that uh that open flame kind of just charging up against your guard and then jumping over it so much. You can, obviously, but um, usually the crew is there and able to react to that right away. And once that's all down and all the, all the smokes are out, we'll actually get down and touch everything on the fire. And we call it cold trailing to make sure that there's no heat left at the end of the day. So you attack these smaller fires. Um... I mean, you don't obviously repel into areas near the city that you could just drive to. So is the whole point of repelling in because you just can't get there easily? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, that's why the repel crew started in the first place. Um, just accessing remote fires. Uh, in the 70s, when they came up with the repel crew, uh, the reason why it was placed in Salmon Arm is because they looked at a history of all the large fires that were inaccessible that got out of control. And Salmon Arm was like basically right in, in the center. And so, yeah, I guess our specialty is just going into those remote areas that are hard or tricky to access. Um, you know, it could take a long time to hike in. There's no landing pads nearby. And yeah, get, get closer to the fire and, and get it out before it grows. So aside from like how you get at the fire, are there some other differences between what you do versus initial attack or other, other crews? Uh, not really. Um, once we're on the ground, we're just kind of like any other firefighter. I guess kind of between other IA crews, I wouldn't say there's much of a difference. Unit crews, like they're typically on the large fires and they're setting up big hose lays 
and doing a lot more burn operations. We typically don't do a lot of burn operations with Repel just because of how remote we are. Um, if something were to go wrong, it would, you know, potentially go really wrong for us. So rather crews will kind of typically do more burn operations, but you know, once you're on the ground, you're just another firefighter. And so what do you mean by burn operation? Uh, so burn operations are kind of the same way of, you can kind of think of it as cutting a fuel free, but instead of, you know, using a chainsaw, you're using fire. So we'll have uh, a guard or a line that like it could be anything, it could be a road, um, something that's not going to burn that we'll, we'll stage from and you'll burn away the fuel between that line and the fire. And what essentially happens is it, it gets rid of all that fuel and we'll put the fire out in that area. And then you just go through with hose and hit all the little hot spots and, and you're done. Um, so if you think of it of like extending the guard past what you can easily do with, with individual tools and uh, dozer or something. Sounds like a whole, a whole topic to go into at some point is like understanding how all that works because that just seems so dangerous and <laughs> risky but uh, i'm sure there's i'm sure there's a lot of like really safe ways to do that so one of the things that we're trying to do with our company here is build some tools to support people in the industry both like non-firefighters firefighters etc one of the things that we keep circling around a lot is indices like the indices that get calculated so there's fire weather indices and all of the components that go into that um there's this thing called the Red Book, which is basically all the fire data you could imagine just pre-calculated for you in a nice little book that you can just go and look up. Do you use those tools, those, you know, the indices, the Red Book? And f- f- for what? It's a little tricky because, you know, you could start your morning in Salmon Arm and you could fly to a fire in Nelson or in the Caribou or anywhere in the province. And so to have that big picture and have all that data it would be astronomical having that on your way to the fire is i'd say pretty rare there are people who do it i have heard of people who do fight fire by numbers but typically not so you don't use it but if you were like what's what's the intent behind the red book and some of these fire indices and why would you use those so what what it's going to tell me is uh what the rate of spread is going to be, how fast it's going to spread, and what kind of fire activity I'm going to see in a particular fuel type. I guess as an IA crew leader, it's something that I'm not reaching for. You know, I'm going to see it when I see it. You know, I'm going to have an idea of what's happening on the way to the to the fire when I see the the column, when I see the smoke, and when I get onto the ground. Um, where I would say it is used is in the the project fire level where you have a whole team you have like a, a fire behavior specialist you've got fire weather and those people are going to be you know looking at the red book and coming up with expectations for what's going to be going on the next day um, and then also at the at the fire center level is where you'll you'll see the fire weather and the fire behavior specialists looking at the red book to predict what would happen if we get a start tomorrow or the next day in particular fuel types right yeah and uh just for for clarity what's a project fire versus uh, a smaller fire like that's just a bigger fire yeah so so the project fire is probably a fire that you're going to read about in the news whereas a typical IA fire you you probably won't is maybe a really layman way of of describing it um typically a, a project fire is something that we will be involved with for a while but weeks or longer, um, whereas a an initial attack target is usually less than a week. So 
what are some of the drawbacks of um, the way that the Red Book works or some of the indices that they're based off of in your eye? It feels like there's lots of like little tricks you, you have to do in order to get things. So for example, like in order to calculate how the fire is going to burn up a slope, you have to convert the slope to wind. And then that will give you your numbers for your uh, initial spread and your rate of spread. Convert the slope to wind. Yeah, which, you know, kind of makes sense because like wind will drive a fire and slope can also drive a fire because it's, it's drying the fuels above it and will burn uphill faster than it will burn downhill. So in a way it makes sense, but in another way it's like a, it's you're kind of just looping around trying to get these numbers rather than it being very concise. Right. Like that specific thing, that slope, wind equivalent, I don't know what to call it, slope, wind, wind slope, slope equivalent, wind speed, I don't know. Um, is that something that takes some understanding to do or is that um, just like a, a, a feature of the Red Book is that it does that for you? I believe it's written into the Red Book. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a slope table conversion in the Red Book. Yeah. But you need to know that you need to do that. I mean, I'm sure you're trained in... in all aspects of firefighting before you get out there and you don't have to like figure this all out on <laughs> the first time you're out. But um, that doesn't seem super intuitive that you would do that. No, I think like, yeah, when you go, when you go to crew leader camp, you are trained on the red book and sometimes crew leaders will kind of train their crew members on the red book. But I think that specific thing, I think is definitely something people do struggle with a little bit, you know, like that's slope. It's not wind. Like, why do you put those two together? But what kind of value do you see in what we're trying to do with maybe creating a digital interactive version of the Red Book and some of the other features that we've talked to you about? I think it would make it more useful, more accessible to anyone, any firefighter who wants to maybe understand more or understand what the fire may look like. Um, right now, you know, getting sort of more like BC wildfire specific weather data is a little trickier. We have to go into the, the government intranet and uh, and access it. So typically we just look at the fire weather or the weather on our phone, like AccuWeather or, or the weather network weather, because uh, that's mostly what we have easy access to and extrapolate the fire weather from that based off of our own knowledge and experience. But if we had an app that was like, this is you know, the weather at your local weather stations. And this is sort of what we are expecting to see in terms of fire behavior that could prepare me and give me a little bit more situational awareness. I also think there's value in it because the more people who use it, the more we could potentially learn where the red book is lacking. And then if we know where the red book is lacking, we can fix it. So I think that's another potential handy feature of, of making it very accessible to, to everyone. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's an opportunity to make those improvements and maybe change some of that model. Like an example, I was in a fire center recently and they're expecting really outrageous fire behavior and we had a whole whack of lightning come through and, and they like barely picked up any fires. And that's, I mean, you look at the red book, it was telling them that it was going to blow up and then real life said that, no, it's not going to happen. There's still a lot of moisture on the ground and, and these fires aren't, aren't taking off or, or even starting in some cases. I suppose that's the better way f to be wrong, right? Is to like be wrong, assuming it's going to be more extreme than it is, than the other way around to, to have this sense of safety, like, oh, it's going to be fine, but then everything blows up. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would also agree that that's the better way to go in terms of being wrong. Well, thanks. Thanks for that feedback, <laughs> Liam. This has been super awesome. I do hope that we can get um, 
something built. Um, ideally, we'd love to have something built this summer so that so that folks like yourself can start using it and giving us some feedback. That's part of the plan. But uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for taking the time to like be a guest, our first guest on our podcast. Couldn't be happier with having someone that repels out of a helicopter. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. Thanks for chatting. That is the Path of Focus podcast where we interviewed Liam Elvins, Rap Attack Firefighter. We'll talk to you next week. 